This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm. Resonance 104.4 FM, that was Jungle Rock by Hank Mitzel. Welcome to the Electric Sheep film show with me, Virginie Selavie, and Alex Fitch. Hello. Tonight we preview the London Film Festival. We talk to director Prano Bailey Bond about her short film Nasty, and to Sight and Sound production editor Isabel Stevens about the female gaze issue of the magazine. And we also have extracts from an interview with Guy Madden about The Forbidden Womb, his new film which is playing at the London Film Festival. And we've also got extracts from a talk on guerrilla filmmaker and distributor Anthony Bouch. So let's start with the London Film Festival preview. Um, so the first uh, big film, I guess, to, uh, to, to stand out in the programme is Ben Wheatley um, with High Rise, the adaptation of the J.G. Ballard satire. Uh, ben Wheatley, of course, made Sightseers and Kill List. So I don't know about you, Alex, but I'm definitely yeah. uh, 
waiting for this or yes definitely i mean i don't think there's been a ballad adaptation since crash there was a, a tv version of the story where there's a, a house with an endless attic um on bbc4 but i think that's probably been about it yeah probably isabel any uh I don't think there have been. No, I, th- I think you're right. Okay, yeah. right. So, yes, we're even more of a reason mm. to look forward to this. And Wheatley was recently um, in Brighton, where I live and work, uh, filming in a warehouse near Asda. So whether that was for interiors uh, near High Rise, which is, you know, the glamorous way that British films are made, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. So we've got a little revelation about possible location for the film here. Um uh, another one is The Lobster by Yorgos Lanthimos. Um, it's another dystopia from the director of Dogtooth. Um, did, did you see that, Alex? No. Mm, Any, anyone? I've yes. seen that. It's, yes. really, yeah, it's really something. Yes, it's quite an amazing film, quite, yeah. uh, quite uh, astonishing and uh, surprising and uh, very um, twisted, I guess you could say. And so I don't know if that's going to be the same thing, but anyway, that sounds good. Um, what else? 11 Minutes by Jerzy Skolimowski, um, who's always an interesting director. Uh, Cemetery of Splendor by Apichat Pong Viora Sitaku. I'm making things easy for myself, am I? <laughs> um, he won the uh, Palme d'Or at Cannes uh, with Uncle Bunmi, who can recall his past lives. So that's certainly something mm. I'm looking forward to as well. Um, and then, ah, yes, the new film by, uh, again, an, a very difficult name to pronounce, Lucien Hanzi Halilovic. Um, her second feature, she's um, the pa- partner of Gaspar Noé, and uh, she made her first feature film, Innocence, in 2004. That was a fantastic film. She hasn't made a film since then, so that's her second feature 10 years later. And that sounds really mysterious and enigmatic as well, so uh, that one would be end again with our uh, talk on uh, female directors. She's definitely one to uh, to, to follow. Um, and then among the big-name directors, there's also a new film by Takeshi Kitano, hmm. uh, Ryuzo and his seven henchmen, a comedy about um, elderly Yakuza. Um, there's some interesting silent films as well, uh, a, a compilation about uh, suffragettes in film, mm. some silent films, which sounds really interesting. And you'll be interested in that, uh, Alex. Um, a Sherlock Holmes film from 1916 mm. that was long lost and has been found. I mean, I always think it, it's hilarious watching silent movies that are based on famous literature because the whole point is the script. <laughs> That's the one thing you're not getting. But, you know, I think it's, um, it's certainly definitely going to be worth a watch. And Holmes has been filmed more than any other character on screen. I think even The Hound of the Baskervilles has been filmed more than any other book, any other book ever written. So, Yes, yeah, yeah, and, you know, 1916 version. That's mm. got to be interesting. Anyway, uh, in the Sonic section, uh, so films that have some kind of connection to music, there's Danny Say's documentary about the Ramones manager, Danny Fields, a documentary about Cambodia's lost rock and roll called Don't Think I've Forgotten, which sounds fascinating, about the 1960s rock scene, which was um, tragically ended by the Civil War and the, the Khmer Rouge um, and the repressive attitude to culture. Uh, and there is also a film by Kevin de la Cruz, who's fantastic. I don't know if anyone has heard of him, but he's this um, very uh, subversive uh, Filipino director and he's uh, he's in the festival with a film called Wound Heart another love story between a criminal and the whore with a soundtrack uh, composed by him 
Um, right, so yes, now, uh, yes, there's also cold section, uh, which we'll be looking at uh, with much interest. Uh, one uh, of the films in that is called The Corpse of Anne Fritz, which uh, sounds like a story of necrophilia and is compared uh, to various other Spanish films. Sounds very interesting. Close theatre, um, Hideo Nakata um, returns, mm. so could be worth checking out. Love and Peace, Yun Solo, Rock and Roll and Turtles, apparently. <laughs> okay. So, yeah. And Kashimike with Yakuza Apocalypse, which is a gangster vampire action film, which fantastic. sounds absolutely fantastic, yes. Uh, and then as part of the cult uh, section, there is a, a Wide at Heart and Weird on Top selection of short films. And as part of that selection, uh, there is the uh, short film Nasty, made by one of our guests, Prano Bailey Bond. Hello. Hi, Prano. <laughs> uh, so can you tell us a bit more? So this is your, your third short film? Yeah, officially. Let's say it's officially my third short, but I've made quite a few music videos and, and other things as well along the way. So. OK, and how, how was the experience of filming that one compared to... Uh, well, we shot on 16mm and Super 8, so it was quite different. Being a, mm. an editor from an editing background and a digital filmmaker predominantly, I had to kind of um, relearn slightly. And to be honest, on set that was quite frustrating. But I think the point where I really fell in love with the film process was when I got the rushes back. Because the, the actual process on set is is you're limited because you have to you know, every shot is taking up film and, and sometimes you're, you've gone over your stock for the day so you might have to kind of uh, reduce the length of your takes and um, coming from a digital background and being an editor I'm used to kind of going, oh let's grab this, let's grab that, let's just do this so you have to be a bit more, um, uh, yeah, you're a bit more limited on that, on that side of things but then you get the rushes back and it's just such a beautiful medium especially the Super 8 stuff as well. It was just, yeah, gorgeous. Um, and the texture, so it was very exciting. It does um, look step. fantastic. Mm. really, you. really looks fantastic. And the, the, uh, what was really striking to me was uh, both the texture, the quality of the image, but also the work on the colours. Oh, right, OK. That's um, interesting that you, uh, you mentioned that because I think colours are a really important aspect of my work in general, but particularly on Nasty because it's about VHS horror. And one of the things that really drew people to VHS horror in the early 80s, which is when uh, Nasty is set, was the like vivid colours on the, on the boxes and, and the posters, um, which is why a lot of them got banned because they had these horrific images, even if they weren't necessarily as horrific when you watch the films but so so my film nasty uh, i mean i was really interested in these two realities being set side by side so this kind of mundane 80s british suburbia against this vivid um video nasty like lucid sort of you know world and the idea that the the lead character doug kind of slowly is absorbed into this vivid video nasty world so the colors in the film move from uh colder blues and and more mundane colors into this sort of colorful <laughs> like lucid world and the reds really seem to stand out oh good the blurred the, the box <laughs> the box when yeah. you, you know he 
yeah. he buries some of his treasures yeah. in the woods. That really stood out. Was yeah. there any specific? Did you deliberately did uh, do that because like you wanted the red to stand out like this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think there were a few iconic images in my head. Like uh, Doug wears a red hoodie, which yes. you know is a throwback to sort of ET, don't look now, um, flatliners even. Um, and so, you know, the idea of red meaning danger as well. So in the grade, in the colour grade, we graded at Framestore with a brilliant grader called Edwin Metternich. And um, we kept just pushing it and we'd be like, oh, let's sort of, you know, bring them out more and more. And that was a really exciting aspect of the film. I mean, I'd never ask a lady her age, but you don't look <laughs> old enough to remember the whole uh, video nasty furor in the early 80s. So what prompted this interest in the subject? You're right. I was actually born in the year that the film is set. Um, so I guess I've got a fascination with the influence of fiction over reality. Um, and it seemed like a brilliant way to enter that, you know, that theme. Um, you know, that I've got a fascination with the video Nazi era, but more so in terms of the social hysteria around that time, you know, the idea of, like, this being the first time that VHS was available in the home. And so low-budget horror was booming, and suddenly we've got this terrifying thing, the, the horror film that's in our, in our house, and it's coming to get us. And you look back on all of the... Um, newspaper articles from the time uh, you know there's there's some great headlines like taken over from some, by something evil from our tv set and rape of our children's minds and a uh, pony maniac strikes again was a good one which was about um yeah some ponies found dead which apparently was caused by video nazis or the full moon um <laughs> <laughs> and there's just so many stories around that time and i just find it really um inspiring and interesting and uh, I guess that was where you know where I where I was drawn to. Mm. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it seems like a really sort of a little joke, a, a little sort of a play with this idea that video nasties corrupt your mind and uh, cause all sorts of uh, violence and and uh, mayhem. Yeah, I'm glad you say it's a joke. That's very good because <laughs> I always think that my films are kind of funny, but they're quite sad and dark as well. And I don't always know if other people see the humour, but um, I'm glad that you, you saw that. Yeah, I think it definitely works both ways. Good. Mm. Thank you. You shot it on 16 and Super 8. I mean, yeah. it must be getting increasingly hard just to get hold of the film stock. It's, it's uh, you know, it's not that difficult. It just okay. costs a lot more money. <laughs> That's the thing. So, you know, we, we yeah, that was the what, what you have to do. You just have to try and get the money to shoot on that and not many people are shooting on it anymore so it's harder to get short ends and and things um but we had cine lab behind us and kodak and they really helped us out as much as possible so how did that come about how did, how were you able to film on 16 and 8 um just good budgeting and <laughs> determination i think um yeah I, I was always determined because I really wanted to get the 80s look right and it felt like, even though, I mean, now you can get these, it's funny because you can get this app now on the iPhone where you can shoot and make it look like VHS and that's just come out recently and we spent loads of time working with Framestore and their visual effects people to 
to make this look like VHS <laughs> in places. And someone did ask me recently if it was shot on VHS. Part of it was shot on VHS. But I wanted that, that texture with the real world and I wanted to get that look right, that 80s feel. Uh-huh. I mean, I wonder if there's some sort of revival going on. And I don't know what that's really tapping into, but some kind of retro technology thing that has a sense of authenticity about it. Because I've um, uh, helped out students at the Brighton Film School and they've wanted to present their short horror films on video. So they've actually transferred them onto videotape in order to show them in class. Uh, I've no idea what that's all about, but maybe it's because the limitations of VHS and the the scratchiness and the low res hides some of the bad special effects. Yeah, (laughs) well, that's the thing. And at the time, people people said that you'd know there was a scary bit coming up because it would have more white noise on it because it had been rewound and replayed (laughs) over and over again (laughs) because kids were just watching that bit back, you know. And I think there's something quite romantic about it now, which is sort of weird when you actually remember it. Um, But uh, I don't know, there's maybe something also slightly haunted about video and tape because there's that idea that something else can be recorded underneath and it's got memory which you don't get so much with digital but I'm sure in 20-30 years time someone will be making a similar thing reminiscing about the digital era. Um, and and why did you choose to make a, a self-referential film? Why not just do a straight horror film? You mean like a meta meta yes. film? I think um, it, that just is a, a, a sort of proof of my uh, obsession with film and the process. And maybe you know it's like I'm eating my own tail sometimes. Like when you're so del- you know you've delved into that world so much, it's it's what you're thinking about all the time. Um, I, I guess, yeah, I'm, I, I find our relationship with fiction really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how it, how it influences us and we influence it, it and it's like this dialogue between fiction and reality and where does it end and where does it start. And is it a dialogue that you want to pursue? Definitely, yes. Well, Nasty uh, is a sort of exploration of ideas for a feature which is not uh, not using the same story or characters, but very much about the same time and the same themes. I'm not able to say too much about it at the moment because it's so early. And, but, yeah. Oh, that's interesting because that was my next question, if there's a feature coming, because this is also something that is discussed in the context of women filmmakers, mm-hmm. the fact that so many women make short films but they never go on to making a a feature film so Mm. next for you is definitely a feature film. Yeah that's what I'm hoping yeah definitely I mean I'm not going to say I won't ever make another short because features take a long time and I like making films so I think you know sneaky short you know is always going to be potential Um, but uh, yeah I'm focused now on, on features and I've got a few stories that I'm working on myself and I'm also reading books that could potentially be adapted and I'm also interested in reading other people's scripts as well so and why do you think uh, that this is such a common occurrence where women make short films but never go on to make a feature oh such a good question I mean it's such a huge question as well from your experience maybe other women that you've seen um I think I mean I see my uh you know peers uh, female directors all kind of stepping into that realm now so Let's see if we can, you know, push forth and equal things out a little bit. But 
Um, I guess it's about power in, in lots of ways and who's making the decisions. Um, and, yeah, I, I, do, I don't have exactly the answer. I just know that it's uh, something I think we should all be aware of and try and, like, retune our thinking to, to um, accept that it's normal for women to be making films. Um, it, it, to me, it's, like, quite a ridiculous concept that we're... That, that we shouldn't be or that it's not normal because in in many ways filmmaking and directing is such an emotional and sensitive um, form uh, film is and, uh, and, and traditionally we are the more emotional of the sexes so if you want to look at it from that point of view then surely we should be doing it as much if not more than men but you know who's the, the powers that be are kind of not letting that happen and we need to change that and obviously things like this certain sound issue is a good step forward in, in showing that there is a history there already Okay, let's have some music So that was Nitty Gritty by Shirley Ellis. Uh, so uh, now we're going to talk about The Forbidden Room, uh, the new Guy Madden uh, film, uh, co-directed with Evan Johnson. Uh, and it grew out of a project called Séance, uh, in which Madden channeled the spirit of lost silent films through, through a series of improvised live events uh, with various guests, including famous actors. Um, and so he uh, was talking... 
he and Evan Johnson, but I think it's mostly going I didn't know we're going to hear. Uh, he was talking at the Berlinale in February 2015. And uh, in this first extract, uh, we're going to hear him explain the Seance project and the overlap of material. Well, we shot a bunch of um, our own adaptations of long lost films at the same time in Paris and in Montreal, uh, in some cases with the same cast. And, um, but that's going to be an internet interactive where anyone visiting the website can hold their own seances with lost cinema and, and, this, and little fragments of films will, will come up and interrupt each other and combine in non sequitur like collisions to form new narratives. Uh, the program will generate a title uh, for that film, and then you'll watch it, and then it'll be lost again. The, the program creates and loses unique films, and, that, and the title will just be entered into an obituary list or whatever. So that, that'll come out in the, in the fall, around the same time as the film gets its release, and hopefully the, the two companion pieces help each other. It's the master plan. We'll see. Just the material overlap. There is a little bit, yeah. Uh, some of the stuff from the Forbidden Room will be used as as raw material in the seances, but it'll be much altered in many cases. There are alternate plots that you can you can change a plot to incredible degrees by just uh, rewording the intertitles. And that part gets kind of hard because you actually have to come up with a completely different story that somehow fits the same edit. Mm -hmm. And um, that's the part that's racked my brains the most. But it's really fun. It's really satisfying when you come up with a plot that somehow fits. Um, I guess it's akin to Woody Allen's What's Up Tiger Lily, where he took the whole movie and changed its plot, but uh, which I've never seen. I've only read about it. But um, it's hard. You know, I don't know. But it's but it's really rewarding. So there, there's literally 500 billion permutations that are possible. So it, every now and then, I, I still don't have a concept of that number. So whenever I think, well, are we really losing and destroying these movies after? But yeah, we are. Because there's going to be, you know, uh, 499 billion left after. Uh, you know, after, after we hit story. one billion views. Yeah, exactly, which is maybe thinking a little optimistically. You had a question, I'm sorry. All right, so we'll go back to uh, Guy Madden a little bit later. Um, but now let's talk to Isabel Stevens, production editor at Sight & Sound, who's just put together the female gaze, the current issue of uh, Sight & Sound, um, which is about 100 overlooked films directed by women. Um, and so do you want to explain to us uh, the idea behind this? Sure, yes. Um, so the idea came about um, really as a result of getting a bit depressed by how many articles there are online about the lack of women directors. And um, we wanted to, we sort of like debated about what can a film magazine do about this because often you know you're reactionary you're reporting on films that are released which are largely directed by men so obviously you can um, champion films that are directed by women when they're great and that's something that we do regularly in sight and sound um, and you can also lament the current situation um, and call for change um, but one thing that we really felt that was um, sort of missing from and sort of I guess inferred by the um, endless kind of outrage and stuff online, um, which is entirely justified, um, about the lack of female directors, was that people were missing that there were a lot of female directors um, um, that have made films right back to the silent era when actually there were quite a few um, working. Um, but that their films aren't as well known as they should be. 
largely because a lot of them didn't get to make more than a few films. And therefore, how do you sort of get auteur status um, when, you know, so if you look at the careers of Hitchcock and Orson Welles, I mean, they made, you know, so many movies. And as a result, sort of, you know, their kind of oeuvre gets discussed in a different way um, to um, a lot of female female filmmakers um, who, you know, would be seen in the same light as them had maybe they got a chance to make more films. And and why, um, so... uh, is there another reason why women uh, get written out of film history? I mean, for instance, I, I, I thought it was really interesting that in his editorial, Nick James asks if the anxiety of inference is a male-only game. Um, and do, do you think that partly explains why women filmmakers tend to be overlooked? Um, well, I think definitely that criticism has been a male-only game for quite a long time, or male-dominated game. Let's let's not write women critics out either. Um, and I think that that's obviously part of it, and part of how we think about film, particularly now in the internet age. You know, what are the top ten films of all time? Well, like they will be, um, you know, often films um, directed by men, and that's something that sort of came up, you know, sight and sound as a greatest films poll every ten years, and you know, it's sort of. Um, celebrated around the world and everyone goes and watches those films and um, I think in 2012 the sort of Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman um, a film that a feature film that she made um, that was sort of the highest um, ranking film by a female director and I think that came in at like something like number 25 um, and there were a couple of other films by female directors in the top 100 but um, you know it, it sort of really highlighted kind of the sort of male gaze if you see what I mean so with this issue we wanted to um, reverse it. So we um, asked um, a kind of almost a hundred contributors to each nominate um, a film that they really felt um, should be more well known. And we also asked f- um, female filmmakers themselves. So we asked Greta Gerwig, um, Jane Campion, Claire Denis, Agnes Varda, um, just a few of them. And um, they were all really willing to take part and each nominated a film and really generous. I mean, like Jane Campion actually nominated about <laughs> sort of 10 films that um, she could write about. Um, but she picked um, A Real Young Girl, which um, is a French film from 1976 by Catherine Breyer. And it's very honest about sort of women's kind of sexual awakening. And it was actually banned um, for over 20 years when it was um, uh, first shown in some countries. Um, And, um, uh, yeah, and it's really interesting to think about that now, particularly with the film like Diary of a Teenage Girl that came out really recently and, again, like caused, you know, quite a big sensation and, you know, was given an 18 certificate and things. So it's, it's a real issue that, you know, is still facing us now. I mean, obviously, after people read the article, there may be many films they've never heard of that they can Google to maybe try and track down a copy. But with Sight and Sound being a BFI publication, what kind of dialogue do you have with the BFI themselves in terms of perhaps screening some of these films or at least putting them on the BFI um app uh, website. BFI player. Thanks. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, actually, the film that I wrote about together, which is um, a 1956 um, short um, made by a director called Lorenzo Mazzetti and um, was the only um, female-directed film included in the free cinema programme, um, which was sort of held at the NFT in the 50s. Um, that's actually available to watch on the BFI player. And there's a few of the films in the issue that are available on DVD and 
um, we're actually in close dialogue with lots of our colleagues at the BFI. There's going to be a season coming out of this next year. Um, which is great because the main thing is that you know people can read about them, but they need to be able to see them as well. Um, and um, I hope as well that it provides lots of inspiration for other programmers out there that they can put these films on too. Yes, and that's that's obviously that's a really important uh, aspect of it. But this reminds me of one of the films in written about in the female gaze issue, uh, which was uh, by James Blackford, and he picked the, the film by Anna Karina that actually doesn't exist anymore, even though it was like, so it's been lost completely, even though it was successful at the time. Anna Corina is not obscure. No. And, and yet that film doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. So that's that's just completely incredible. Yeah. And he, he actually hasn't seen it, but he's sort of written, read around and like dug up reports of the time. And, um, and yeah, I mean, you, you wouldn't really think that in this age a film could be completely lost. Um, but yeah, this one is, and we're hoping that would definitely be one that we'd really like to screen. And I think it also draws an um, attention to an interesting point that the issue raises, which is quite a few of these films um, in the issue were directed by actresses, largely because that was kind of, you know, you had power and influence and possibly money too, and therefore you were able to make a film in the way that maybe like an editor or a cinematographer or somebody trying to work their way up in the industry otherwise wasn't able to. Right, okay. Um, right, so we're going to go back to this, but first let's uh, listen to Guy Madden again for a bit. Um, so we will listen to uh, him talking about the inspiration behind the film. Are we, have we, are we able to do that one? One second. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yes, so the inspira inspiration behind um, the Forbidden Room and also the palette that he chose and how he worked on it. At one point we discovered that movies weren't just being lost in the 20s and 30s, but there were movies that the Khmer Rouge destroyed in the 70s and they murdered the directors even. Um, that there were exploit low-budget exploitation films that were getting lost just because there was only one print and the director I don't know, pawned it for something or just lost track of it or died and his widow didn't care or something like that, you know. So there were lost films from all over and it was, uh, when, when Evan was color timing the uh, that little musical number involving the derriere obsessive man, he decided to give that a kind of a 70s, kind of a lurid 70s palette that whether it instantly reads as that or not is beside the point. It just felt like now we're not just imitating the very limited two-strip Technicolor palettes of, of real film history, which is basically just a bluish-green and a pinkish apricot, uh, but, but creating other palettes as if from a parallel universe or something. I think in that case it was more Udo Kier's haircut. The yes. Yeah, it, it's sort of, yeah, Udo, Udo had kind of a blonde Mo Howard yeah. <laughs> thing going, like a fourth stooge or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah, that determined the palette. But um, there was, turns out, I was really despairing while shooting it because it was my first experience shooting raw color HD video. And I just didn't have it, my attitude. I, I wasn't seeing things that were really beautiful. But I have a lot more courage now knowing how much the footage can be fixed and how much of the palette 
I made a color movie way back in 1992 where I controlled the palette literally by painting everything. You know, I would paint people's faces, I would paint you know, paint their clothing and paint, you know, uh, the walls and paint plants and, you know, um, literally. And then, um, but when we were so poor on this film that we had to take our props from anywhere and we weren't allowed to paint them, we had to borrow them. And so there was just no palette to the naked eye no order no control no no art no thought put into the color we just couldn't afford to think about it and uh, so it had to be added later and but I didn't know when I was shooting it that how much of that we could do and I didn't either mind you I told no. you I did yeah but I at that <laughs> point didn't know because I needed I was desperate just yeah. to have some sort of even fake confidence yeah, yeah. there's a net there's a safety yeah. net don't worry you won't, when you fall it won't hurt <laughs> you know but uh, luckily it gave me a little a little bit of mojo a very diluted mojo enough to get me through the day and then and then he actually did fix it up and I feel really great about the way it looks you know it's it looks like it's all planned ahead of time Right, so let's go back to our uh, discussion of the female gaze issue of sight and sound. So, Isabel, you mentioned all the people that you invited to contribute. And how did you select the uh, filmmakers and actresses? Um, well, I suppose I started off um, with Carol Morley, who recently made The Falling, because um, she's sort of a close friend of the magazine, and um, she'd written something for us recently, so I thought that was easy. And she came back straight away saying, also I knew she'd presented, she'd introduced um, a Muriel Box film before, so I sort of went to her and said, would you like to write on this? And then I sort of thought, oh, maybe we should you know, be a bit more ambitious about this. And I'd interviewed Jane Campion before, so it was quite easy for me to get in touch with her. And I knew that she'd been quite outspoken on sort of the issue of female directors. So I, go, I suppose I tried to prioritise it along those lines. And then gradually I just sort of thought, oh, well, you know, let's we have lots of contacts here at Sight and Sound, so let's just try people and see. And, I mean, you have someone like Agnes Varda, who's you know such an amazing filmmaker and obviously doesn't have that much time. She's in her 80s and she's making another film right now. <laughs> Um, and um, you know it was so great that that she was willing to take part, particularly when sort of um, sign, you know we've got in touch with her before to take part in our documentary poll, and she hasn't really had time to do that. But this seemed to be an issue that was really close to her heart. Mm -hmm. Okay, and I guess what Nick James implies in his editorial is that men look at each other in terms of influence; they they want to emulate other men, and they're not looking at what the women are doing. They don't really seem to be interested in in that. Um, are you hoping that the same thing may happen by doing this, that maybe female filmmakers starting now, like, you know, Prano, um, going like, oh, right, yes, I want to be like this this amazing woman? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do think that, I mean, if you look at, say, like films about filmmaking, they're often always about male directors and that kind of creates a myth around them as well. And, and, and um, I suppose, like seasons are often programmed you know like so and so selects say Quentin Tarantino selects these great films like we know them as kind of directors we also know them as curators and like how many female directors do you know like can you say in that sort of same light so I think this was kind of an attempt to sort of do that as well definitely. Um, I was actually on a panel uh, last year at Underwire Festival and they asked me to go and talk about a book called Celluloid Ceiling which focuses on female directors in all the different countries around the world and as I read it, for, like, started reading it, I thought, God, this is the first time I've ever read a book about female directors. And I've read books on directors since I was a teenager. And you don't think as a female director that you're any different 
but it was only at that point that I kind of went, oh, wow, I've just always been aspiring to David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino and, you know, men, and it, it was kind of strange. Did it change that? Did it, uh, you know, from reading that book, reading this issue, do you now think, oh, I want to be like this woman? No, I don't think that I do, but I think it might might help younger filmmakers. I think for me, and whenever I hear other female directors talk, I don't think women see themselves as being any different just because there's nobody else. You know, you kind of see yourself as a filmmaker as opposed to a woman. I, I You know, so in that sense... Um, I'm I'm already there. I'm focused. I'm doing it. Well, I mean, you probably don't want to blow your own trumpet version, but within the article, there's an article within the article about uh, <laughs> uh, female horror directors. Um, and I hadn't noticed that you point out that the Babadook and is it it follows is also by a female director. No, it follows the Babadook. And yes. oh, there was another one. No. It's, and, over there. It's American anyway. Mary. Ah, yeah. Okay. Oh. Um, and you know, when I think of some of my favourite horror films, Antonia Bird's uh, Ravenous would be in there, uh, Near Dark by Catherine Bigelow. So actually, it'd be fascinating to see um, a short season of horror films by female f- filmmakers, because so many male horror film horror films directed by men are all about fetishizing the female victim. It'd be interesting to see what happens in a way when the role is reversed, that the woman has the power behind the camera. To be entirely honest, I have also seen films made by women where the the, the female characters are depicted in a very um, objectionable way, I'm going to say. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes you have very sensitive uh, portrayal of, of women by men. For instance, I'm thinking about Sunchoke, which played at Fright Fest this year and was just absolutely beautiful, complex, nuanced, absolutely what you want. And it's directed by a man, and he seems to have this incredible uh, um, intuitive understanding. Um, and, you know, I won't name other films that, you know, uh, represent the opposite tendency, but I have seen films made by women which seem to be which are worse than mm. you know some films some very insensitive films made by men so there's some <laughs> desire to assimilate with the male maybe, filmmakers maybe yes mm. I think sometimes that definitely plays a role yeah so you can you can have that problem I think in horror sometimes but mm. yeah and you also um, for the issue for the actual list itself you nominated um, The Velvet Vampire by Stephanie Rothman didn't you and that seemed to have um, she had quite an interesting um, relationship with the kind of women on film that she depicted. Yes, yeah, and she was working in an exploitation background, um, and sh- she has a very ambivalent relationship to her to her films and to her career because it was never quite what she wanted to do, and that was the only way of making films for her. So I like her films, I think, probably more than she likes them, um, but uh, but I understand, you know, her position in the sense that if it's not what you want to do then and you find yourself making exploitation films, then that's not a very comfortable uh, situation to be in. Mm. Uh, but, yeah, she's a very interesting uh, person in, in film history, definitely, mm. I think. And she, I think she needs to be reevaluated, definitely, because I was thinking about this while writing this article, and um, she, her film is, is, is dismissed um, a lot by critics, but... Um, I think if you like Jess Franco, you like The Velvet Vampire. It's got the same faults and the same qualities, you know, so I, I don't understand why you would look at her film in a harsher way than you would at, you know, Jess Franco or Jean Rollin or that sort of thing. It's within the same sort of filmic world, really. So, 
Anyway, why am I talking? You're my guest. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, we'll have some music. <laughs> Too much talking. Now every woman's entitled to one mistake. Lord knows I've made one. But baby, if you give me half a chance, I want to make it up to you. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. Who's calling me? Oh, who's that calling me? Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. When I told you I was through and I told you to move on, I didn't know I'd miss you so, but baby, I was wrong. Those nights without your love, they ain't worth thinking of. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. Oh, woman, save your breath. Little woman, save your breath. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. When you told me you was through and you told me to move on, I found a sweeter love than you and it didn't take me long. No, now baby, please don't you do that to me. I need your crazy kisses so to rock me tenderly. Those nights without your love, they ain't worth thinking of. Come on, come on back, come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. I'm never coming back, ain't never coming back. Come on back, Jack. Hey, Jack, come on, come on back. Now I'm pleading with you, baby. What you got to say about it? I ain't coming, honey. Now please, I apologize. I admit I was wrong. I help you all I can. But I ain't coming. Remember, I told you I'd get on my feet again. But now, wait a minute, Jack. I'll help you. I told you I was sorry. Right, so let's go back to our discussion of the female gaze with uh, Isabel Stevens. Um, so what was the most surprising entry for you? Oh, that's a difficult question. <laughs> um, surprising. Um, I suppose... Um, <laughs> I'm quite stumped by that one. <laughs> well, I was going to say that when I was going through the list, I've seen the uh, I saw the seashell and the priest was it the clergyman the clergyman, and the seashell, clergyman yeah, yeah. Um, with a live score by Minima a couple of years ago, and I, I had no idea it was directed by a woman until I read the article, and it's a fantastic bit of surrealism that should be mentioned in the same voice as you know Dali and mm-hmm. uh, uh, and Shan and Lou and the other early experimental filmmakers. Yeah, I think there's a lot of like kind of like, oh, I didn't realize that sort of that person was making a film then. Um, so, you know, we have like kind of a noir film. I think it was the first Norwegian noir film was made by a woman that was made in 1949. Death is a Caress, which is such an amazing title. It just makes you want to go and watch it right now. Um, and so I think kind of that element of sort of um, surprise is, is there sort of throughout it. Um, and um, I think you also have the case of like, there's a lot of uh, maybe well-known male directors who were in relationships um, with women who also directed films, but who've also kind of been forgotten. Um, so um, you had Alexander Dovchenko, the great um, Russian director, um, his wife, um, 
made a film called The Enchanted Desna. And I think she was always very sort of inspired by him as well. So that's kind of maybe part of the reason why she's sort of been overlooked. People just sort of thought because he died um, and she carried on making films that she was kind of working in his legacy and making his films. Um, and so... Um, yeah, that, that was sort of one of the surprises. And again, that that film was like Goddard's favourite film in the 70, one year in the 70s. And you can't see it now. Um, and is definitely one that should be seen on the big screen, apparently. It's visually, like, spectacular. Hmm. There's one question that must be asked is, do you feel that maybe this kind of exercise might sort of ghettoise women in the sense that, OK, so you just talk about women filmmakers and not about filmmakers in general. I mean, you know, if we separate women from the men, mm-hmm. does that help with this, you know, attempt to get equality? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's definitely great films by male directors that have been forgotten as well. And um, uh, this issue kind of came out of an issue that we did in 2007 called Hidden Gems, which should have looked at um, films that, you know, had been sort of forgotten and deserved to be reappraised. And a lot of them have since been on DVD. And there were quite a few films by female directors included in that issue. Um, but the one thing that I would say is that obviously like ghettoizing them is kind of what we worry, we're worried about sight and sound um, but I think we felt that because often in a lot of cases like these directors didn't make more than a few films how else are you going to collect them together and remember them because they're not going to have like you know an extended season of their films um, and so unless you sort of do it in this um, category hopefully bring them to light and then maybe they'll be seen in other thematic programs and and that kind of in a different way in the future well i was going to say wearing the other hat that i wear as the <laughs> presenter of panel borders second tuesday of the month on resonance fm at 8pm um <laughs> the female comic book creators <laughs> have felt very much uh, ghettoized over the years and say 10 years ago if you had a panel at a comic book convention called Women in Comics, it was a very useful thing to bring attention to the female creators that were out there. I think if you do it now, it seems a little bit patronising because everyone knows. But certainly that door needs to be open to start the discussion going if there is, you know, a topic uh, that needs to be discussed. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a lot of female directors today don't want to be seen as a female director. They just want to be seen as a director, and that's totally understandable. But I think particularly because our focus here is on the past, um, uh, that sort of, I guess, angle is, is valid. Yeah, definitely. And you also said that, of course, you know, by choosing 100 films, it's very limited and mm. there's many more. So is this only a point of departure? Do you think you will carry on with, with this investigation into the... Uh, overlooked films by female directors. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a sort of regular column in the issue called Lost and Found, where we sort of champion for a film that should be on DVD and that isn't. So I'm sure there will be lots more suggestions that find their way into there um, in the future, for sure. If you had to recommend one film that people should absolutely watch in that selection, (laughs) what would it be? (laughs) That is really hard. I mean, I haven't seen, like, um, you know, so many of these films. um, And it would be really hard to... Which one are you the most excited about? that you um, haven't seen. <laughs> that I haven't seen. Um, I suppose, uh, thinking about this sort of uh, issue of video nasties and horror films, there is a documentary from 1980 called Demon Lover Diary, and it's made by um, her filmmaker called Joel DeMott, and her boyfriend at the time was um, the DOP on a kind of schlocky film called um, Demon Lover, and she basically went along and sort of hijacked it and sort of filmed it um, uh, made a sort of diary of the filmmaking, which for me is something that, like, you know, you don't normally see because most films um, about filmmaking are made by men. Um, and I love the idea of kind of films about filmmaking anyway. So that is kind of one that I'm really excited to see and track down. Okay, excellent. 
Right now, uh, let's listen to an extract from the uh, lecture by William Fowler on British cinema guerrilla filmmaker and distributor um, and William Burroughs collaborator, Anthony Bouch. Um, and this was at the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies last Thursday, 10th of September, at the Horse Hospital. The Miskatonic uh, Institute uh, in London organises uh, month, uh, yes, monthly lectures on horror film, various aspects of horror films. Um, so we're just going to listen to an extract, which is about Haxon. Uh, while we're on that subject, and our brilliant engineer Chris is queuing it up, um, if you are a film academic, a film student, or indeed a comics academic or comics student, uh, Cine Excess, the cult film festival, which takes place at the University of Brighton this year and the University of Birmingham next year, um, still has its call for papers open. So if you have anything you want to say about cult cinema in a 20-minute presentation um, on the films of Wes Craven, who we're doing a retrospective panel on, or violent uh, British comics of the 1970s, um, then Cine Excess would love to hear from you. You can find more details about the event at cine-excess.co.uk. Yes, are we good? All right, OK, so let's go to uh, the Miskatonic lecture on Anton Bouch into films, or at least uh, at least to get people to see them, rose to whole new levels when it came to the 1920s Swedish-Finnish production Haxan, witchcraft through the ages. Uh, in the words of Amos Vogel, who wrote about it in his film as a subversive art, this exotic curio is cited all, in all major histories of the cinema, banned and unavailable until recently. It examines witchcraft, magic and diabolism, recreates the witch courts, the devil's mass, the hallucinations and the temptations of the age. With its witch's demonology and, and to a degree of S&M, it was tantalising stuff, especially to audiences in the 1960s. Occultism had been slowly on the rise since the repealing of the Witchcraft Act in 1951, and by the latter part of the swinging decade had become quite groovy, largely due to the visibility of witches Alex and Maxine Sanders in the press. Uh, Jonas Mikas, the doyen of experimental film in the USA, however, was not impressed. Uh, writing in the Village Voice, Village Voice, he scoffed, I urge you to see the film despite one unfortunate fact. The version that you will see is the bastardised English version, prepared by a well-meaning but obviously stupid young man, Anthony Bouch. It takes stupidity to do what he did with this great film. To a beautiful, great film, he added a jazz score and a speaking narration by William Burroughs. If Bouch heard about Mikas' thoughts, he was not perturbed. And you can check out, and if you get the DVDs, you can check out the original version and uh, the Burroughs-Bouch version. And there's also a curious version with the Teletubbies in on YouTube, which is worth checking out. <laughs> uh, which I don't know what Janus Mikas would make of, frankly. I suspect he might have more of a sense of humour now, but I don't know. Um, at one level, Bouch was thinking commercially, commercially, but at another, he just wanted people to see good or at least unusual or interesting movies. The programme notes for the thoughts of Chairman Mao, which he had bought read in Chinese, no subtitles, contained some amazing footage of the hydrogen bomb tests, and the Chinese warriors are all dressed up in plastic suits and goggles. In colour, we are showing it because no one else will. So he appeared to have something of a kind of nihilistic um, attitude when it came to both making films and screening them. Similarly, on René Clair's Les Fenettes de Galat, I know I won't make any money out of it, but it ought to be shown. It's so beautifully made. 
He became fascinated by the impossibility of predicting success in the market and convinced that the title and the marquee mattered more than the actual content of the film, said friend Tony Raines, which I guess is, you know, he started with Horror Hospital began literally as a title and then the synopsis and everything else came later, very much in the kind of uh, Roger Corman mode in America. Uh, he once told me, uh, said Raines, that he discussed buying the UK rights to O Hazard Balthazar, the rest of the Robert Bresson film, and suggested retitling it, This Beast is Not for Beating. Does anyone know Bresson's films? It's, I mean, that's not quite the tone that they associate with that kind of production. And interestingly, Bresson, he said, completely approved. Uh, Bouch, Bouch was a fr- uh, regular frequenter of the Cannes Film Festival and had personally subtitled Bresson's Pit Pocket back in 1959. So chances are that he and Bresson at least had at least met at some point, so it may not be entirely a tall story. Um, Bouch had also paired Bresson's Mouchette with the Val Luton horror picture Isle of the Dead. Um, he liked unusual double bills. Um, with- so that was William Fowler talking about Anthony Bouch at the Halls Hospital as part of the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. The next uh, talk is on the 8th of October and it'll be Kayla Janis, uh, who founded the Miskatonic Institute, talking about her new book that she edited on the satanic panic phenomenon of the 1980s. Um, the female gaze issue of Sight and Sound is on sale now. The London Film Festival runs from the 7th to the 18th of October and the tickets go on sale tomorrow. And Nasty, the short film by Parnell Bailey Bond, is playing on the 11th of October, the Rich Mix, and the 13th of October at the BFI. And we'll leave you with Ooh, You Bring the Wolf in Me by Piney Brown. Good night. You You bring out the roof in me. Yeah. My national teeth begin to growl every time I see you. I've got to howl. You bring out the roof in me. Yeah. You bring out the roof in me. Yeah. You. Sweet and you look so good. Are you who bring out the wolf in me? Yeah. I'm getting more and more vision, yeah. Each and every day, yeah. You look so delicious. I bet you need a bodyguard when you pass my way. Are you who This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.